Welcome to Hiraith, a home for the left in Wales. Joining me in Kerry this week is Sam Parry, who is a PhD student in Economic Underdevelopment of Wales. Hi, Sam. Hi, guys. How are you doing? So this week, we're going to look at the question of whether socialism and nationalism are compatible ideologies. Sam, obviously, this primarily relates to the comment that Mark Drakeford made a few months ago, where he said that he doesn't think those ideologies are compatible. Mm -hmm. Um, What was your reaction when you heard Mark Drakeford's comments? I did think it was a quite a strange comment. I'm not entirely sure how much he could have really meant it, though, because it was in reference to monolingual uh, road signs in Ceredigion. I thought really it was, well, I think the new buzzword these days is triangulation. I think he was probably trying to triangulate this idea of uh, national identity. Because the week before, he, I think he had won quite a lot of support from a few Welsh nationalists because it, s- it seemed like he was taking quite a different approach to Westminster. And I don't think he wanted to be perceived to being too nationalistic. And he kind of fell back into that category of trying to perceive unionism and Britishness as something quite value neutral that transcends nationalism rather than, you know, accepting it for what it is, which is, of course, another form of nationalism. I'd also suggest that not changing your mind for 50 years from when you're 14 isn't principled. I'd probably say it's more shows a lack of self-criticism and self-reflection more than anything else. So... To you, are socialism and nationalism compatible or conflicting ideologies? I don't think that they're inherently conflictive, but I don't think they're inherently compatible either. As with all things, we really have to look at the class character of a movement, and that's how we consider and evaluate whether nationalism or patriotism in a certain context is compatible or conflicting to socialism. So I guess if you look historically and theoretically, national liberation movements in Africa, Asia and Latin America have all clearly been progressive in the 20th century and before. And this is whether they were clearly socialist or not. Um, Because, of course, weakening of any imperialist power, whether it's Britain, France, USA, is progressive. And there was was something I I, I read the other day, which I, I really liked, possibly well, one of Lenin's most famous books, so where he says that imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. Well, if that's the case, does it also then hold that anti-imperialism or national liberation in these cases is also the highest stage of revolutionary struggle? You know, we can also look historically at movements like the People's Republic of China, the Soviet Union, and we can see there how socialism and nationalism can be compatible when they're linked with revolutionary theory. So Lenin spoke quite extensively about great Russian chauvinism, for example. And what's really interesting here is that he said that the non-Russian people, they shouldn't just have equality, but they should actually be compensated for the lack of trust that the Tsarists and the Russian chauvinists had shown, uh, shown them in the past. So, you know, let's look at, you know, the Georgian language or Armenian, for example. None of these were codified before the Soviet Union. So... This is, of course, somewhere where national movements or nationalism and socialism are compatible. In China, too, Mao spoke quite extensively about Han chauvinism and how that needed to be tackled. And also, this is really interesting because within the Han identity, there's 16 subgroups, right? So it once again shows quite interesting how 
nationalism, identity, ethnicity are all fluid and how they're all very dependent on a specific context. So Mao wrote about the different types of patriotism or nationalism during the Second World War. So he talked about the patriotism of the Japanese aggressors and of Hitler, and he compared that to Chinese patriotism. So he said that Chinese patriotism was different because of the, it was the victim of aggression. And he says how it's only through national liberation that it's possible for the proletariat to achieve their own emancipation. So it's really interesting. He says that patriotism in this case is internationalism in practice, okay? It's only by actually controlling the state, which obviously comes through nationalism, can you actually then emancipate other working people. So again, you know, very clearly you have, you know, this dialectic, you know, dependent on the type of movement there is, if it's right-wing, centrist or left-wing, the type of socialism or patriotism changes, right? So I don't think we should look at socialism and nationalism being inherently compatible or inherently conflicting. We have to look at the very material realities and the circumstances. How does that follow in the British makeup of socialism? You know, where it's traditionally been a working class person is the same in Cardiff as they are in Carlisle. <laughs> this idea of, um, you know, the, the working person in Carlisle and Cardiff is the same is a, is a really, really interesting one, actually. I think on occasions it can fall into class reductionism, really, in a way. So if we are intersectional in our approach, our reality is change dependent on, you know, our gender, our ethnicity, our whatever, our sexuality, whether we're disabled. And I would also include nationality in that as well. So I agree that, you know, class is the primary contradiction. But, you know, we can't also pretend that these sort of, these functions, so, you know, the way that we deal with the state, etc., doesn't change dependent on our relation to it. So, for example, I think it's very fair to say that a working person in, in Cardiff who might also speak Welsh, or might also be black, will have different types of experiences you know he his 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 welsh language culture historically would have been under attack he would be racially profiled and he'd be a working class person so a lot of the time when people talk about uh, you know the british working class um i think one it can be a dog whistle you know about these people that don't really exist <laughs> in reality and two i think it's really a way of again assuming that Britishness is value neutral and kind of non-nationalist, when in reality it's just a different type of identity. I, I, I do think there is an over-conflation um, in Britain between the state and working class solidarity. Y you know, if, if working class solidarity only exists within the state, then you know, Welsh people wouldn't have gone and fought in the Spanish Civil War. Cubans wouldn't have gone to fight in Angola against the apartheid state, you know? We also really, I think, have to look back to something quite principle that Marx said, that, you know, a nation can't be free whilst it oppresses another. And I'm not stating here that England oppresses Scotland and Wales, I just want to make very clear. But I would say that there is, you know, an occupation in the six counties. 
and the idea of the UK and how the UK is viewed, it's very, very problematic. And I still think there is that oppression there. This notion of working class solidarity, I mean, and how, how that would change. I mean, if, if anything, if you, if you had a reunified island, an independent Wales, you know, Scottish Republic and an independent England, I don't see or perceive how people as equals coming to the table that can then redefine their kind of relationship with the state couldn't actually lead to a, a strengthening of that solidarity. Because what we seem to have at the moment is both perceived and real grievances from all sides. On one hand, you'll have someone in the northeast of England annoyed because Scotland and Wales are perceived to have more money from the central government, for example. On the other hand, you have Scottish and Welsh people angry with England because they don't think they get enough, right? <laughs> I, think, I think the British state, as is, has been quite good at kind of fermenting disagreements between working class people and that's also true by kind of ethnicity gender all types of things as well to you is like is is welsh nationalism is left-wing welsh nationalism more to you about emancipation from capitalism than it is about independence from england for me wholeheartedly you know 100 percent. do you think that's the aim of the of the welsh independence movement though I, I don't think you can look at the, the Welsh independence movement as one kind of coherent whole. I do think that there is a petty bourgeois strand there that kind of just sees the idea of nationhood as something worth having in and of itself. You know, and usually that just comes down to maybe, you know, the types of jobs and things they do. I think, I think there is an, an undercurrent there, like a, quite a, a large minority which do really see that link between kind of socialism and nationalism. Um, you know, if you, if you compare the, the movement for, I, I, I hate the term, but English independence, because I was thinking, you know, independence from what? But that is clearly uh, a reactionary sort of harking back to the glory days sort of idea, where I do think in Wales, it's kind of a lot more like those sort of communitarian ideals. Uh, Scotland, I think, is more of a mixed bag again. If you go somewhere like, you know, Glasgow, where the kind of the radical independence group are strong, or Dundee, there was a clearly a left-wing element there. Um, if you go somewhere more like, you know, Edinburgh, it's a lot more sort of petty bourgeois ideas around just kind of nationhood and uh, prestige on the global scale and those type of things. But, you know, I, I really kind of keep on coming back to the ideas of, you know, James Connolly here. You know, he, he wrote once about, um, jokingly, about how great it would be when you get evicted from your house, but um, it's the Irish state doing it rather than the British state. You know, well, what's the point? I mean, what's the point of being racially profiled as a child if it's the Hesley doing it rather than the police, you know? There is no point if there's no substantive difference. You know, I don't want to be, as, as the Irish call us, a, a, a mini Britain, a little Britain as well as it's called in Gaelic. But, you know, there has to be a real socialist process in Wales for independence to be worthwhile. Do you think then that the Britishness is inherently regressive or and Welshness inherently progressive, or is the picture more nuanced than that? Well, I, I definitely don't think that Welshness is inherently progressive. That, that, that Britishness question, 
I think is a lot more difficult to answer. Um, and I think it depends if we're talking, you know, in the abstract or if we're kind of talking about how things are right now in the real world. You know, there's nothing hypothetically stopping Britishness from being progressive, you know. Is it at the moment? Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. And, and I, think, I think for a Britishness to be progressive, there needs to be a few steps that happen along the way for that to happen. Firstly, there has to be a reunified island, you know? So I think there you have to kind of look at Britain and the UK differently. You know, can the island of Britain have a progressive movement? Quite possibly. I don't think it can be one that's based on things like the Union Jack, have the Queen and be based in centralised Westminster. I think the only way that a sort of progressive British identity could come about is ironically with a breaking up of Britain where you could come back to the table on a kind of confederal basis where you decide what is pulled and what isn't. But I don't see how we can go from the situation we have now. You know, as much as kind of Billy Bragg, etc., tries to create a progressive Englishness and Britishness, etc. Neither of those identities historically really have uh, a very progressive root, in my opinion. How about um, in the Labour movement itself, uh, Sam? How do you think the, the differences between patriotism and nationalism and a lot of what you've just described about the British state and uh, the military and things like that, how do you think those play out across the Labour movement in the UK? So... Um, the reason I've been using patriotism, for example, is um, the, the the terms that kind of uh, Vietnam, uh, the DPRK, China, etc., use is social patriotism rather than nationalism. Okay, so you know, if, if we're talking about this sort of idea of you know socialist patriotism, uh, I mean, even going back as far as Keir Hardy, you know, who had a lot of flaws, he was in favour of um, home rule. So it's not as if, uh, you know, these ideas are completely averse to the Labour movement. You know, if you look at um, uh, John McLean, for example, um, in Scotland as well, uh, I almost said James McLean there, but who's also another working class legend. It's very much dependent, again, on where you are and your relation to the state, in the sense that it's very telling that, you know, you do have these people within the Labour movement like James Connolly, John McLean, Keir Hardy for all his flaws that are very much in favour of independence. Whereas within the English movement, it's very much similar to what Lenin would call that great Russian chauvinism. There is that, I think, great English chauvinism in there, inbuilt in there, which can also come down to kind of this class reductionism again, you know, that is the only thing that matters and that's the only thing we need to sort out and the only thing we need to deal with. And I really don't think that there's been enough work within the wider labour movement of really kind of trying to excavate that. In Wales, a lot of it comes down to this kind of idea of, you know, self-preservation or whatever it is, um, this sort of timidity of not wanting to, to rock the boat. But there isn't going to be a boat left with, you know, the way we keep going. Hope that kind of answers your question. Where do you see that going for Labour and nationalism in Wales? So, it, on the previous pods we've had, we've had people from Labour for Indie Wales, and mm -hmm. how do you think that you know that will play out 
with the Labour Party in Wales because one of the interesting things for Scotland for me is how I think the growth of the SNP has really been on the back of Labour changes in outlook and mm-hmm. how do you think that can develop in Wales do you think that will happen with Labour people going to Plaid as they as I'm suggesting they have with the SNP or will it be that independence growth within the Labour Party itself? So on that on that point, uh, I would just like to make very clear that I do not consider the Labour Party to be socialist in any way, shape or form. So when I'm talking about socialism, <laughs> I'm not talking about the Labour Party. But but on that point, I think ironically, what what's what's been actually really great to see in Wales is that this this movement is one that's been taken out in a way of party politics and it's really kind of grassroots movements that have been pushing it forward and it's kind of like this well reluctance um to 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 talk about it but now kind of realizing that they have to talk about it a bit i i do end up always being quite annoyed that you have people like carwin jones who would never ever ever speak about it when he was first minister but now he's leaving um, he kind of opens up about it. With regards to the the Welsh Labour Party, what they've always been very good at doing is listening to public opinion and kind of changing with public opinion. It wouldn't kind of shock me entirely if they kind of moved to this sort of confederal or federal Britain, you know, that type of model. My my major worry, um, as someone who wants a socialist independence, is having people that I would define as careerists kind of becoming part of the movement might actually hinder the type of Wales we do have if we go in that direction. What, what's been quite great to see is having people that aren't worried about turning the party line talking quite honestly about what how they want the country to look afterwards and doing that from outside the party political spectrum um, has been really great to see and I really hope that continues and it's not it's not quelled or quashed by kind of Welsh Labour. Just to clarify then the federal side of things which is emerging a little bit more now Keir Starmer and all that 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 wouldn't be something you'd be interested in it really is an independent socialist Wales. I think that ship has sailed a long time ago. You, you see a lot with um, states or nation states or whatever you want to call them. There's this idea that they are sort of timeless and they've been here forever. You know, the, the British state as we know it has only been here for just over 100 years, what, 104 years, something like that. They're, they're made out as if it's, you know, been here since time immemorial. It would not surprise me just before that last nail in the coffin goes in, that they kind of try and move to a federal model, uh, very much as what would happen with the vow. But I think we'd be fools to really think that the UK, as it exists, can be reformed. I think for that to happen, you'd have to say straight away, Westminster has to become a museum. You'd have to straight away say, we're a republic, because you cannot be a progressive state whilst also believing in someone's divine right to rule it just doesn't make sense you would have to basically give independence to scotland and wales and the people there would decide what powers go back to the center 
you would probably have to have some sort of system where the more culturally distinct areas of England have the opportunity to decide whether they want real parliaments or real assemblies with real power, not that was offered to the North. And I can't see anything, any of that happening. Um, as I suggested, the only really way I can see that happening is after independence, if there then became a point where people wanted to re-pull power afterwards. So you talk about wanting uh, independent Wales, Sam. We want to go a little bit into the economics of that now. Obviously, we, you know, we're always told there's a big budget shortfall if Wales are ever to become independent. And I don't think anyone denies that that there is an issue. One, do you think that budget shortfall would be worth it? Two, do you think it would be something that's insurmountable? So, so with regards to the kind of budget, I think it's roughly 20%. We spend roughly 20% more than we pay in. Then if you then took out, for example, the defence budget, etc., you know, it comes down to roughly 12%. Um, and most countries were on a deficit of about 6%. So just for a bit of background, I think that's how we're looking. There's a couple of issues I have with that. I mean, firstly, it kind of assumes that the only thing that would happen after independence is that who who takes the taxes and you know who pays for the NHS has just moved from one building to another. You're doing literally exactly the same, but instead of going to Westminster, it goes to Cardiff Bay. And I really think that shows a lack of imagination, right? My way of looking at it is that there is enough money in Wales. There's enough resources in Wales. The biggest issue issue is that one, it's not allocated efficiently and fairly and equitably, and neither is opportunity. So we really, really need to have a conversation about the the type of government and country we want, you know. I don't think we'll ever be the type of country that will have some massive GDP per capita or GVA per capita where we're all driving new cars and I've got the new iPhones. What I do think is possible is that we can create a country where nobody sleeps on the streets, where no child goes to bed hungry, every person has the opportunity of going to university. It's those type of things that we could do tomorrow. And this idea of a budget shortfall in that case is absurd, right? I, 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 I sometimes do kind of really scratch my head at this kind of lack of imagination. You know, if you, if you, if you look across the world for examples of these small places that have really, really made a huge stamp on the world. You have Grenada and uh, the New Jewel movement to Maurice Bishop. The, the whole country has a population less than Newport. You've got Thomas Sankara, who vaccinated 2.5 million people in a week. You look at Nicaragua, the Sandinistas, or Salvador Allende in Chile. Nobody sort of scratched their heads and say, oh, um, I, I, I'm not sure about this budget deficit and how this would look, right? I do think sometimes we do get dragged down into the wrong types of conversations. I'm not saying that they're not important, but the, the stats, the, the, the figures aren't really correct as they are because they don't look into actually what Wales owns. You know, the Queen owns the seabed in Wales. It, do you know what I mean? It, it's actually very, very difficult to kind of quantify those things. And maybe we should actually be concentrating on what we should do with the resources we have instead. It's, it's interesting when you say that. It's almost like a, a, the way we look at that budget shortfall, quote-unquote budget shortfall. It's a sort of hang-up we've got from being part of the British state, in your eyes, then. It's the, the framing that the UK and Britain has given us 
as the way that we think that an independent Wales would look. Whereas in fact, what you're saying is we need to be thinking outside the box a bit and not using that, the framework that we've been given previously. Exactly. I, th- I think it's really endemic of this sort of managerialism that we, we have with the, the Welsh Parliament. You know, it's, here's my budget and this is what I can spend, right? It's, it's very much how you would um, deal with, you know, your household budget, you know, but that, that's not how countries work. And we're, we're kind of still looking at an independent Wales within these confines. Again, you know, I'm not stating that we'll be like, you know, GDP will rise exponentially. But there's, there's you know, how, how much did it cost to um to stop homelessness? What, twenty million pounds, something like that? And we've had twenty odd years to do it, and we haven't, right? You know, it, it's 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 a lack of imagination. I think we should really be kind of pushing at all these boundaries, whether it's economic, political, constitutional. In a way, I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but kind of act as if we are already independent. Because we, we, we can change a lot of these things. You know, it might be more difficult when you've got one hand tied behind your back, which is how I see us with our kind of economic levers. But I don't even see that anyone's been making that argument. It's just, oh, we can't do it. Why can't we do it? There seems to be a quite comfortable situation where we quite enjoy just divvying out pots of money without actually worrying or thinking how can we actually you know concretely change and transform Wales why do you think that is then because I totally agree with you we've had 20 years to do some of this and I like the hand behind the back analogy but why do you think ostensibly a socialist party I know you might disagree but it's it's one we've got why do you think they haven't taken more of those kind of risks and choices to change society in some of those ways I think some of it comes from the background of those people that are within the party I mean a lot of them have come through local authorities for example and it's a very specific way of doing things quite a few have kind of come from you know the third sector public sector those type of things and there's nothing wrong with those types of jobs i'm not saying that at all it's just that for for a you know supposedly working class party none of them have really worked in working class jobs and by working class jobs i mean jobs where you know you sell your labor for a living and i think there is this sort of interregnum where you know people call the parliament at times you know a buffed up local authority and the reason for that is because i think people act as if it is right uh, I, I i don't want to have a go at people personally or like kind of question why they get into politics or anything like that but there must be something quite comfortable in a way of just knowing okay this is where my power lies I'm quite ambivalent either way about Britain and an independent Wales. I'm quite happy and quite contented with this. I have a job for life. I'm not going to rock the boat. I, I really do think that that is, well, that's my perception of how things are within that party. I, I think it really has become kind of disentangled from its working class roots. And you know, this, this is going back a long way because, you know, even when you go back as far as Nye Bevan, there were people in that cabinet like Ernest Bevin and, you know, Clement Attlee, which were like huge colonialists, etc. But there's no one like Nye Bevan in the party no more. There's no actual kind of working class people grounded in the communities. I don't even know how many of them actually live in the communities. If you look at the UK party, around 20% of them are landlords. There is a complete sort of, yeah, disconnect between who they purport or supposed to support and the kind of background that they come from. 
And you mentioned then the the UK party. So you see that that is across the board in the UK party as well, yeah? Hugely. Um, I, I generally do think that Corbyn was different. I, I think Corbyn, though, was... He he was he was the 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 best option out of you know not like a great choice you know but it was very very clear it was quite obvious that what there's only three people in the Labour Party in Wales you know in government that supported Corbyn which was Drakeford, Mike Hedges and uh, who's the other one? Oh, Mick Antony. Mick Antony. I think those were the three. It's quite clear that like Blairism has taken root within the Welsh Party, and you see a lot. There are a lot of authentocrats in the party in Wales. Um, I think that's true across the board. Um, but it was quite clear that there was a Blairist sort of vanguard in Wales, shall we say? You talk, you know, you talk about Corbyn a bit. If Corbyn had won, do you think you'd still would have wanted an independent Wales? Do you think if you had a socialist, a truly socialist UK, uh, an independent Wales would still be as desirable? Yeah, well, th- th- there are a lot of things there. I mean, we, we can't guess what would have happened. That's someone who's kind of social democrat or the leader of a party that isn't a social democratic party, right? You know, the, the party still did bomb, to, uh, did vote to bomb Syria, for example. They still wouldn't be giving uh, Northern Ireland a vote on reunification. There the, the still wouldn't have been representation for, for, for Wales. But a lot of that does come down to the, the types of Welsh Labour politicians we have. And also there, there is that big question of, we would have had Corbyn for five years perhaps, and then what would have happened? We might have gone back to boosted, turbo-boosted type of conservatism, right? Um, whereas an independent Wales, if I'm, if I'm disappointed with results in Wales, the worst thing I'm going to have is a wolf in sheep's clothing that doesn't kind of go left wing enough for me, but still kind of defends against the worst excesses of conservatism. Whereas if we're in the UK, I have anywhere between a wolf in sheep's clothing and the worst excesses of conservatism, right? <laughs> the, 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 the kind of scale or the spectrum of the types of policies I can have are quite different. We we haven't mentioned Plaid in this kind of pod yet today, and that's obviously uh, a party of the left, obviously the leading party in Wales for independence. Do you see Plaid as meeting the expectations you want to deliver an independent Wales? I I am a I am a supporter of of Plaid. They they they're not they're not left wing enough for me. But let's be fair, I am quite extremely left wing compared to most people um, in Wales. Um, they are definitely the party that is closest to representing how I feel. The question of, you know, what happens after independence is, you know, is an interesting one. Um, you, you could kind of see a situation where the Labour Party, which is actually decoupled from this kind of unionism, might actually become the party it was always supposed to be, right? But Plaid are a left-wing party that believe in social democracy. I think what Plaid and all parties need to do is sometimes stop looking at other places for inspiration and try and be, like we said on the podcast last week, try and be more like Wales, do what Wales does well. Though, yeah, I am quietly optimistic about Plaid Cymru in the upcoming elections. So you're talking about Rocking the boat, Sam. Obviously, the biggest 
boat rock we've had in Wales in the last couple of years or in Britain more generally is, is leaving the EU. Do you think it's socialist to want to be part of the EU? Do you think an independent Wales can still be socialist and part of the EU? I do think that being in the EU definitely makes it harder to be a socialist country. No holds barred here. I generally think that the EU is a neoliberal institution and far from being internationalist, I think it's actually hugely insular. It's kind of created a fortress around Europe to maintain its wealth and its privilege. I actually did a little bit of um, a work experience in the European Parliament and to get there, you have to go to, through a park named after King Leopold, who killed tens of millions of people in the Congo, right? It pushes for a regime change in Venezuela. It recently passed a law that said that communism and fascism were these twin evils, you know, the victims of communism and fascism, as if they're somehow kind of, you know, linked together. So in that sense, I really do think that the EU is this kind of bourgeois and quite reactionary institution. I don't think it's a bad thing that Wales has left. And I do think that, you know, even if you looked at the policies that, you know, someone like Corbyn wanted to pass, the EU made them quite a bit harder to do. You know, these ideas around state aid and that, you know, well, I don't want state aid, you know, I want state control of institutions, um, which is, again, even further, right? But kind of looking at my my research or my, my PhD research, and um, so I basically want to look at the underdevelopment of Wales. So looking at kind of the economic, cultural, geographic kind of axes and how they work together to kind of create, you know, this idea of underdevelopment on the peripheries of Europe, basically. And I need to do a bit more of work on it, but I really think there's something in this idea of structural fund objective one funding and structural funds and how in wells they already held up as like well well you know the eu gives us lots of money you know it's it's, it's a great institution for example on a on a uk level wales gets more money from uh, the central coffers than it gives in right but most of this comes in things like unemployment benefits okay so the things that could actually create jobs and generate wealth and those type of things. So think of, you know, big infrastructure projects, for example. Wales actually receives quite a bit less per head than other parts of the UK, right? So this idea that giving more in unemployment benefit is this sort of necessary evil or kind of is a good enough trade-off to ensure that wages are kept low across the UK and there's always this reserve army of labour in Wales to use when necessary, right? And I think you can really, really use that same argument when it comes to objective one and structural funds, right? If you actually look at the countries that have been receiving this funding for the last 40 years, they're all exactly in the same position now as they were before. You know, the only exception maybe is Ireland, but, you know, Dublin was just voted the worst city in the world for affordable housing. 75% I think of Irish GVA is in Dublin, which is actually the same as London to the UK. So it's in a way created this kind of mini UK, right, in, in Ireland. And, you know, literally they just do whatever Apple wants them to do these days, right? So all the other places are still poor. It's as if this objective one funding, structural funding is this carrot, right? It's like, okay, we'll give you this bit, right? But then what these places give the rest of Europe is a huge reserve army of labour. If you see how many people from southern Italy, 
go to France, Germany, Northern Italy to work. Same with Southern Spain. If you think of like the ex-Yugoslavia, East Germany, etc. There's this just huge, huge pools of labour for the kind of rich places to exploit, right? There's also, it stops um, wages from going too high in the centre because they say, well, if you want too much wages, we'll just move somewhere cheaper, right? It's as if it's what's happening in Wales and the UK on a much, much, much bigger scale. I really think this is something that's quite underlooked in, in, in Wales, to be honest with you, is the actual structure of Europe, you know, what this actual trading block is doing to these places, what this trading block is doing to places outside of Europe. Germany makes more money from coffee than coffee producers. Um, it roasts them and creates apparently value from that. So yes, I, again, in a long-winded way, sorry, I do like talking about the EU. I think that the EU makes it much, much, much harder to uh, be a socialist country. That would be true of Britain or Wales. And if you look at kind of the, the socialist, I mean, actually socialist parties across Europe, the vast majority of them want to leave the EU for this very reason. So I, I'm quite interested in the take there on on Ireland specifically, Sam, because that is obviously one of the main countries that we in Wales look for when we talk about independence. And, you know, that was about 100 years ago now. But for the first 60, 70 years of independence, Ireland really was suffered. You know, its main export continued to be its people, which is Mm -hmm. a historic position for Ireland. And then it was only with the EU, Ireland's kind of what we perceive as fortunes changed. But you might take a different view on that. Well, I mean, the, the, the Celtic tiger is, was a very, very, very specific type of governance that happens at a very specific period in time, which is basically really high spending, low tax, but, you know, getting those big, big, big corporations in. But can you imagine, for example, a situation where, let, let, let's say, for argument's sake, that the rate of tax for a company like Apple in Ireland is 10%. And tomorrow, Scotland and Wales become independent, right? And we say, right, we want to emulate what Ireland did. So we all put our tax at 10%. Well, they're not going to move because they're already grounded in, uh, in Ireland. Scotland then might say, all right, we'll put it down to 9%. We'll say, okay, we'll put it down to 8% and vice versa. And we go on and on and on and on, right? It's a, it's a race to the bottom. If you looked at how, what happened in Ireland, this was before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So there wasn't as if there was this huge masses of other places in Europe that these places could go. It was during a really massive, you know, boom, um, a global boom as well. So I'm not saying that, you know, the Irish experience wasn't good for Ireland, but it's not something that you can just emulate or pick out the box and say, right, we're going to do this here. It, It was due to very, very specific circumstances. And of course, you know, GDP has risen exponentially there. But again, have you seen some of the photos of, you know, five people living in a dorm room type of thing in, in, in Dublin? Is, is that worth it just to say, you know, our GDP is high or, you know, the average wage is 50,000 euros? Well, I don't know how that's actually shared out between people. You know, you, you've also got there now this kind of interregnum where the largest party can't form a government because the two right wing parties are conspiring to keep them out. You know, it's not as if... The Republic is a perfect sort of module for us to emulate. Why Why are there groups like, you know, Connolly Youth Movement or Sinn Féin or whoever still kind of fighting? It's because they believe 
like James Connolly, that independence is only half the battle. And that, you know, you only get true independence with socialism as well. I think that would be a, a nice place to round off, to be honest, Sam. But the one area I think perhaps we haven't explored, which I think we were hoping to tonight, is just the right wing kind of approach to nationalism, which we, we touched on Brexit, you could argue was led by that kind of right wing British nationalism. How do you see that kind of difference to the, the left wing independent nationalism we've got in the Celtic countries? Right-wing nationalism really kind of comes this idea of, well, one, defining, and then two, kind of defending this idea of a so-called, you know, true national identity. And they kind of see these other elements as corrupting it, right? Someone who's been quite successful, really, in, in, in using this is um, the, the, the massive Islamophobe and racist, you know, Geert Wilders in the Netherlands. He basically says that, you know, I believe in freedom and democracy and I'm a gay man and that Islam wants to kind of take this all away from Europe. And, you know, Islam is incompatible with this kind of true European identity type of thing. It's very much this sort of blood and soil sort of nationalism. A lot of it is linked to white supremacy, social Darwinism, all these types of ideas. It clearly has its roots in like, you know, the empire and those type of things. But then, you know, social patriotism um, or nationalism from a left-wing perspective, it's really about, you know, linking a love of country with kind of these left-wing socialist positions. So Kim Il-sung has a quote that I really like to kind of define social patriotism, where he says social patriotism is loving each tree at the side of the road and each chair and desk in the school. So basically, these kind of things that give social value to society kind of are the things that you are proud of, right? It's, it's, it's pride in civicness and in your institutions. You know, it's a pride in ensuring that everyone has the right to education, to work, defending the rights of all people who live there. You know, it's, it's completely substantively different. And, and that's why I think it's really important that we do have a, a class analysis when we, when we look at these things. There's no point saying all nationalism is inherently right wing, as the first minister has said, for example, because that doesn't mean anything. You know, that, that's devoid of any meaning whatsoever. I, I, I can't, you know, you, you wouldn't go to Cuba and say, oh, you're a Cuban nationalist, so you're inherently right wing. It, it's the most absurd kind of argument ever, right? So that's why I think the Celtic identities and nationalities have the ability to be more progressive. It's not ingrained. It's not definite. There is definitely a right-wing element within Welsh nationalism. But there is, I think, a core of people who really do have this sort of socialist patriotism that, you know, you, you just would not get with right-wing nationalism. Sam, thank you so very much for appearing on our show tonight. Um, what is the best way for people to get hold of you? Uh, the best way for you to get hold of me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is, I think, the very aptly named at Welsh Bolshevik. Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, if you like what you've heard tonight, please don't forget to find us on Medium at Heroes Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Heroes Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Heroes Blog. Thank you for listening to Heroes. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe rate and review.